Many, many Bible teachers regard the number seven in the Bible as the number signifying completion. But I have to tell you this morning that nowhere does God say in the Bible that seven is a number to pay special attention to. Nevertheless, today I'm going to complete this study on the subject of forgiveness with a seventh and final message. <laughs> if you want to hear the other ones, I'll give you... Uh, I'll tell you what they, what they were about, but, uh, and I would encourage you to do if you missed it or if you have an uh, interest in it. We were doing this on Communion Sunday every month for the last couple of months. So to go over the first six, the first one was on divine forgiveness. This is where it all starts, right? We have been forgiven of all of our sins because of the mercies of God. Then the second was therapeutic forgiveness. And address the question, is that concept biblical? The idea that you must forgive somebody who did something wrong to you, even if they didn't seek your forgiveness or were unrepentant. Otherwise, you would harbor bitterness. So it's a form of self-therapy. That is not biblical. Then we talked about a parable of forgiveness, the prodigal son, part one. And then the fourth message was parable of forgiveness, part two, on the prodigal son. And then the fifth was humility. Humility is the key to forgiveness. Pride is the great deterrent to our willingness to forgive someone or even to seek forgiveness. We also looked the last time at the duty of the forgiven. What obligation do you have in the light of the reality that you have received forgiveness from Jesus Christ for all your sins? So today in the final message, what about forgiveness and the unrepentant? I'm going to go back to the definition of forgiveness. This is the last time you'll hear this from me. Uh, God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him. Although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences of their sin. However hard it may be, and there are many things that are hard to do, that the scripture tells us to do, we must do them, right? That is our obligation as believers, including being willing to forgive someone who has offended you. Maybe they have offended you greatly, but if they seek your forgiveness, you must forgive them. And we're going to see in this message, you you must do more than just waiting for them to seek forgiveness if you can. But we do not always get the, the result that we prayed for. We pray maybe that someone would be reconciled to us, but, but it doesn't happen because they may be unwilling to do so. So I'm going to just mention a couple of things here. If you are the offender instead of the one offended, you must seek forgiveness from the person that you have hurt. If someone has sinned against you, and it's hard for you to do that, to forgive them, you must remember that God's forgiveness is gracious and free, although conditional, and so must yours. You must be gracious. And then thirdly, God's forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. We, we need to remember that. The key verse that we've been looking at has been Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So we take our example from the way that which God has forgiven us. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, just as it comes to it in, in any other situation in our life, uh, we are not sovereign, right? I mean, God is sovereign. We are, we are not. We do not always get the, the results we hope for. Christians can control only what they can control. Matthew chapter 18. Turn there and look at verse 15. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault, his sin, between thee and him alone. And these are conditional. You can notice this with the if. If he will hear thee, you have gained your brother. There's reconciliation. But if he will not hear you, if he rejects you, then take one or two or more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So that's the second step. And if he neglects to hear them, then the final step would be to tell it unto church, to the church. And if he neglects to hear the church, then let him be treated as a heathen man and a publican. There's nothing more you can do at that point until God changes his heart. Or he's willing to allow God to change his heart. But the scripture lays out two scenarios there. One being the case when a brother is repentant. And the other when he is not. Now... Just as there is joy, the Bible says, in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, we rejoice here on earth when a damaged relationship between believers has been restored. It's a beautiful thing because it pictures the love of Christ for the church and the reconciliation. But they are, they are not always restored. Damaged relationships are not always restored. Now, the damaged relationship can be between a Christian and another Christian that we just saw here in Matthew chapter 18, but it can be between a Christian and someone who is not a Christian. So I think we need to keep this thought always in the front of our mind, whether it's relationships with Christians who have been broken or unbelievers. Christians are called to be peacemakers. We are all called to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, the verse does not say, Blessed are the peacekeepers. Peacekeeping is one thing. It's often just staying out of the way and doing nothing. Peacemakers are active participants in the process of seeking peace. As much as it is possible, the Bible says, as much as within, lies within you, seek peace. It's not always possible. Now, how do you do that? You do that by sowing the seeds of peace, the things that make for peace. So in other words, we are to work diligently to create peace and to reconcile people that we are at odds with. Psalm 34.10 says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That means we take the lead. It says, seek peace. And the word there is the very familiar word in Hebrew, shalom. Shalom. If you go to Israel, many people, you go to stores, meet people on the street, you meet somebody opening the door for you at a hotel or whatever, and they will say shalom. And you will say shalom. 
And that's, that's not saying good morning or good afternoon or, or good evening. Shalom means more than the absence of conflict. It's actually wishing wholeness or well-being upon someone. So really, when you say shalom to someone, what you are saying is God's highest good to you. I pray God's highest good to you, God's wholeness for you, which entails peace. And that parallels Romans 12, 14. Bless them, bless them who what? Treat you nicely. No, it says bless them who persecute you. Bless and curse not. That verse, as we saw last week in Romans, is wishing well upon an enemy. So you're asking God, in a, in, a, in a sense, and you're not going around shouting their praises, as I said, but you're asking God to bring a blessing in their life with the intention that this blessing, this goodness of God, would lead them to repentance. And, and the scripture actually even says you're to sorrow with those who sorrow and so forth. Now, in the matter of peacekeeping, or, or uh, seeking peace, peacemaking, and just like it is with many other things in our life, our prayer life, our Bible reading. If you are coasting, you are probably going downhill. Right? You can only coast so far on the level. So if you find your Christian life continuously in coast mode, you're definitely going downhill. You're not making any progress. So I say that in respect to peacemakers. We have to be proactive in doing good. We have to be, be proactive in seeking peace. We don't expect everybody to come to us. Sometimes we need to initiate the process. Philippians 4.1 Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. It opens up on a real positive note there in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. But then you get to verse 2. He says, I beseech, strong word, I entreat or I admonish Eudeus and Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we don't know anything more about these women we don't know what the dispute was between them. We don't know how long it had been going on, but Paul addressed it. And he wanted these two co-workers in the gospel who had a dispute to seek peace between themselves. And you know why? He doesn't really go into all the reasons, but I think the most obvious reason is so that the, the witness of the church would not be hindered, so that their own personal witness would not be hindered. And, and he went even further than appealing to them. He appealed to the whole church to help them come to reconciliation. Philippians 4.3, And I entreat you also, true yoke fellow, that's all the believers there in the church at Philippi, help those women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement, also, and with my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. Look, these two women, they were believers. They were actively working in the gospel. They supported Paul. Their names were written in the book of life. 
And yet they, had, they, they, were, they were fighting with one another. And it just goes to show you that Satan is a roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. And he will try to come in even into a church. And he will try to sow discord and dissension and things like that. So we, we have to be always on the watch. And we have to be proactive in, in making peace. Philippians 2.2, Paul said, Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. I think it's the same love for Jesus and the same love for one another. Listen, if we're all pursuing Christ, if we're all loving Christ the way we should be loving Christ, we are going to love one another. The natural outflow of that is love for one another. And I think proof that God desires to be reconciled to sinners. Now we know that that from Scripture. That is his desire. That's his goal. But it, it does not always occur, does it? And the proof that it does not always occur, that God desires to be reconciled reconciled to sinners, but it doesn't always happen, is because they obstinately refuse to be reconciled. Some people refuse to be reconciled. They, in effect, are saying, I will never forgive you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ. And there's a whole world of theology wrapped up in those words, which I don't have time to get into. God was in Christ. Think about it sometime. Reconciling the world unto himself. In other words, what Jesus did, he did in behalf of all humanity. He was reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto him. And he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How sinners can be reconciled. That's the gospel. And that's why he says, now then we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are to preach the gospel, to share the good news. As God did beseech you by us, pray you in Christ's stead. And here's the invitation. Be ye reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world. God desires sinners to be reconciled. And then here's the strong command. Be ye reconciled to God. That is what every sinner must do who's alienated from God. And if you are here this morning and you are at enmity with God, which you are because of your sins, and you have not been reconciled to him, which means his wrath abides upon you, and you have not been reconciled or that wrath has not been satisfied on your behalf because you refuse to trust what Christ did in your place for your sins. I implore you to do that now. I don't know everybody here. But I will tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture that God is always willing to forgive a repentant sinner. Always. He does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say what? Come. And let him that hears say, come. 
And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Three times, three times that word come is mentioned there. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You think about the Old Testament economy. Think about Israel. Think about all the things that they had to do under the law, right? They couldn't find perfection. They couldn't find rest. The only way a person can find rest for their troubled soul, their sin-sick soul, is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You know, God created all things in heaven and earth in six days. And then what does it say? On the seventh day, he what? He rested. And we're admonished in the scripture that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So, so that resting of God on the seventh day was actually a picture, a picture of finding rest ultimately in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing when you've done that. But what keeps people from coming to Christ? Pride, right? Pride. Pride says, I can do this myself. I don't need God. Maybe there isn't even any God. I don't see any evidence for that in my life. I don't need to be saved. All kind of excuses. Pride holds out all kind of excuses. But the root of all those excuses is the heart of pride. You know Luke twenty two thirty nine. You know the story. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If you be the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Don't you fear God seeing that you're in this, this condemnation? And we indeed justly for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man, right, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. He came to Jesus. And Jesus received him. And he found rest. He was a malefactor. That's a compound word meaning an evildoer. Most translations use the word criminals. Both of those men deserved to die for their crimes. Both could have been saved, but one wasn't. He reviled Christ. And he entered eternity a lost soul. The other was, was saved. He was saved. Talk about a deathbed conversion, right? You know, do you know, you ever stop to think about in your own mind, well, boy, when I get to heaven, I want to meet Daniel and I want to meet Moses and I, all these people, you have this list in your mind and Paul and all. I want to meet the thief on the cross. I don't know if he was a thief. I want to meet that criminal. Could you imagine meeting that fellow in heaven? Talk about the grace of God, right? The mercy of God that we sang about. And then when you read on further in Luke 23, it says in 33, verse 33, And when they were come to a place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. 
God is always willing to forgive the sinner who repents, but not all the consequences of their sins are removed, right? He paid the price for his crimes. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment, and they cast lots. Since the series is on forgiveness, the question is, were those who put Jesus to death forgiven because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That would be unconditional forgiveness, which is not what the scriptures teach. This whole series has been about that, and the whole Bible is about that. So then what are we to make of this request of Jesus, because some people do use this as a proof of unconditionally forgiving other people who offended us. Jesus did. He said, Father, forgive them. So whether they seek repentance or not, you must forgive them. Therapeutic forgiveness. Now, we, we must understand that there are no examples of anyone receiving forgiveness from God apart from a repentant faith. None. There are no examples of that. When forgiveness is mentioned apart from an explicit act of repentance, it can be assumed that repentance occurred because of what we know about forgiveness from the Scripture and repentance. So those who put Jesus to death and those who ordered his death were not forgiven. As far as we know, maybe some came to faith later, There was the centurion who said, truly, this man was what? The son of God. Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, for they know what they do. I take to mean it to be a prayer that those individuals would be forgiven in the future. I think he was praying that they would come to see the heinous crime that they committed. They knew not what they were doing, and they would repent. And at that point in time, in the future, in their repent, when they repented, they would be forgiven. Jesus did not thank the Father that they were already forgiven. He did not forgive them as he did other sinners on many other occasions, saying, go your way, sin no more, I forgive you, or so forth. So that's how I, my understanding of that verse is. Prayer is important. We can pray. This is a seed of peace, sowing peace. We can pray that those who offend us will come to repentance in the future. Even if they refuse to talk to us now. Even if they have no desire for that in the present. Go back to Romans 12, 14. Bless them who persecute you. What does blessing mean? Well, it's the opposite of what cursing means because he says bless them and do not curse. So it's asking God to do something good to somebody who has hurt you so that through the goodness of God they might be brought to repentance. Rejoice with them who rejoice. So you actually rejoice when you hear something good has happened to them. Somebody who has offended you. Because you're praying and you're hoping that God will use that goodness, that blessing in their life to get them to think correctly. You sorrow with them when something bad has happened to them. Because you're praying that maybe in their sorrow, maybe in their loss, they will be brought to repentance. Now, Chris Bronze, who wrote the book from which I've taken some of these ideas, he said this, withholding forgiveness from someone 
who does not repent does not foster bitterness. The therapeutic forgiveness model says, well, if you don't forgive them, even if they don't want forgiveness, then then you're just going to stay bitter. You're just going to hold on to all of that bitterness in in your heart. It's precisely the opposite. We have been created with a standard of justice on our hearts. And when we violate that standard of justice, when we forgive someone who does not repent, down deep we are saying that forgiveness must must sometimes happen at the expense of justice. And that's not biblical. Because God will take justice upon every sinner who does not repent. Forgiveness can never occur at the expense of justice. You want proof for that? The cross. The justice of God was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we repented and put our faith in Him and in His work of redemption. Praise God for that. Thinking of Romans chapter 3. Verse 24, and it says this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God had set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the only way the justice of God could be satisfied. For you, in your behalf, by trusting Christ. Now, when we understand that those who persecute us or offend us will ultimately face the justice of God, the vengeance of God, then we are free, I think, we are free and ready to to have true love and compassion for them. Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, Do not avenge yourselves. Don't seek vengeance. But rather give place unto wrath. That's the wrath of God. Alexander the coppersmith had did me, Paul said, did me much harm. What did he do? Walk around bitter? Holding it all in? No, he knew that God would take care of that. Don't give place to wrath, or give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I want you to stop for a moment to consider how deeply someone has offended you. Think of the person or persons who have offended you the most, who have caused you the most hurt. Maybe somebody's coming to mind right now in the present. It's hard for you to forgive them. It's hard for you to pray for them. 
I would suggest to you this morning that it is very little in comparison to how you have offended God. The offense they have done to you is very little in comparison to the way that you and I have offended God. We know the depth of our offenses against God, right? Because the only remedy for forgiveness was for God to send His only begotten Son into the world to die for those offenses. That's how great sinners we were. That it cost the life of His only begotten Son. If God can love like that, then we can at least pray for those who have offended us. Pray for them and not become bitter in our hearts against them. 2 Timothy 2.23 Foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strife Right? He's a peacemaker. He must not strive, but he must be gentle to all men. He, he must be able to teach, to instruct. He must be patient. In meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, so that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. He's the source behind it all. The source behind all wars. The source behind all conflict. So I'm going to close with this statement from Mel Gregory Jones and then give you one scripture, final scripture, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He said this, People are mistaken if they think of Christian forgiveness primarily as absolution from guilt. That's a Catholic concept, then, by the way. Go to confession, you do your confession, say your whatever it is to the priest, he gives you a little penance to do, and then he says, Te absolvo, I absolvo, I, I, I absolve you. you know? And then you walk away, as I did for Rome, as a Roman Catholic for many years, feeling great feeling no guilt until I committed my next sin, which really wasn't very far off in the future back then. I, I usually didn't make it through the day. You know, I made what they called a good confession, but it didn't last very long. I'm thankful for the forgiveness God gives, right? I buried your sins in the depth of the sea. I've cast them behind my back as far as the east is from the west so far have I removed them from me be remembered against you no more so he says people are mistaken if they think of Christian forgiveness primarily as an absolution from guilt and this is really important and it's a good note to end on the purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of fellowship the reconciliation of brokenness, right? You have a broken relationship with someone right now? What, what do you really want? 
You want to see that, that broken relationship restored. You want to be able to have fellowship with them again as a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. I say to you, Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother with a cause is in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of Gehenna, hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Be proactive. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother because that's the goal. And then come and offer your gift. I just want to tell you, really, if you're harboring bitterness against anybody, For anything, it's hindering your worship. It's hindering your walk with God. And it's very difficult for you to come and partake of this table, which speaks about the reconciliation that God did in your behalf through Christ to restore you to fellowship with Him. It's really hard to do that if you're going to hold on to any of those offenses against anyone in your heart. Father, we just thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this word from Scripture. Help us to put it into practice. It is hard for us. Sinful nature being what it is. We want vengeance. We don't want to see people who've hurt us blessed and good things happening in their life. We don't sorrow when bad things are happening in their life. That's against our sinful nature. Lord, help us to to think like Christ. Help us to be ready always to forgive, to seek peace and to pursue it, to sow the seeds of peace, do the things that will make for peace, pray for those who have hurt us, that you, Lord, will touch their life and bring them to repentance so that the relationship we had with them can be fully restored. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.